0: Welcome to the Library Lovefest Podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz! HarperCollins Book Buzz! Check it out! Doo-doo. Book Buzz! HarperCollins Book Buzz! Brought to you by Library... Love Fest. Hi, I'm Lucia Macro, and I am an executive editor at HarperCollins slash William Morrow slash Avon Books, which is probably more imprints than you'll ever want to hear about. Um, I just, I'm so thrilled to be speaking to all of you, you librarians out there. Um, A little known fact about me is I actually have a, I have a master's in library science from Pratt that I got a few years ago. So I always feel that if this all falls apart tomorrow, I will be off with the rest of you um, working hard for the public libraries because that was what, that was sort of my dream for a long time was to be a public librarian. Uh, My life took a bit of a different turn, and here I am now editing some really amazing books that I want to talk to you about. Um, So what I was going to do was just chat a little bit about each book in turn, and then I'll give you a little idea of what the book is about. I'll tell you maybe who might be the good kind of reader for it, maybe a little reader's advisory going on, and um, just sort of take it from there. I wish it was the kind of thing where people could ask me questions. Um, so maybe someday technology will get that far. You can, you know, chat back with me about the books. So anyway, I'll just start. Um, it, one thing that will become clear to a lot of you is that I edit a lot of historical novels. And One of the historical novels that I'm so excited about that's going to be coming out in the fall of 2018 is Hazel Gaynor's The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter. And some of you may have read Hazel Gaynor's previous historical books. Her most popular one is probably The Girl Who Came Home, which was about the third class experience on the Titanic. Hazel is uh, just a wonderful, you're gonna hear this a lot, she's a wonderful writer, but she really is a wonderful writer. And the one thing that I love about Hazel is her research is impeccable, but you never feel like you're reading this kind of boring pedantic, you know, like this is a historical novel. She makes these these situations and these characters come alive. So The Lighthouse Keeper's Daughter is a bit, um, it's a dual narrative and it's really, would be perfect for anyone who, um, loves books about strong women and maybe strong women who they haven't really heard about but who you know lived in real life um, this is about a woman named Grace Darling and I knew about Grace Darling when I started reading Hazel's Proposal a while a while back because when I was a little girl there was this album and maybe if you are of a certain age, as I am, you had to listen to this album by the Limelighters and they had this whole song about Grace Darling and there was audience participation where you all had to scream the words, help, help, because there were all these shipwrecked sailors. Grace Darling was a real Victorian heroine. She, um, with her father, almost single-handedly rescued these these sailors who were shipwrecked on the rocks outside um, in the wild ocean by the lighthouse where she lived and there was a giant storm and everyone said you're crazy don't go out there and she and her father got in this tiny little boat and rowed out and saved these people and she became in many ways um, you might call her like the first um, like pop culture Victorian heroine. The Victorians were fascinated by her and her life and living out there on the lighthouse and her bra- bravery. She was plucky. Everyone adored her. and The newspapers were all over her. And really all Grace Darley wanted to do was live on her lighthouse and kind of have this quiet life. Quiet life was totally taken away from her because she became a heroine. The dual narrative is very Hazel Gainerish, in that Hazel often will take these, this kind of true story and combine it with um, a fictitious story. Here the fictitious story, you fast forward to the 1930s, and a young woman um, has gotten herself in a family way, very scandalously, and she's shipped off to um, Newport, believe it or not, in the United States, where her aunt is, big surprise, a lighthouse keeper. Uh, but you know, these stories intertwine in a very interesting way. I'm not going to get into the details, but this is just, it's very um, romantic in the sense of the word that um, it has, you know, lots of waves and scenery and people and big dresses and the wind is blowing and you get that real atmosphere. So if you have fans of Hazel Gaynor, fans of Victorian set books, fans of stories about strong women, this is really the book for them. So I hope you all give it a chance and enjoy it because she really is um, just really at the top of her game with this particular story. So now I'm going to fast forward a little bit to books that that are not coming out until early 2019, but I know you all are probably looking for stuff to add to your, I'm guessing, to your collections. And once again, Lucia has a lot of historical novels and I'm just going to go through them each kind of briefly. The and the first is called um, the Quintland Sisters, and it's by an author named Shelley Wood. And when I was a little girl, I learned all about the Dion quintuplets. The Dion quintuplets were the first identical quintuplets born who lived um, anywhere, and they were born to this super poor family in Canada, and they, these you know a farmer's wife, a farmer and his wife. And the wife goes into labor, and she has five kids, and they're like the world. They're like their heads are exploding all over the place because there's no way that these kids could have been born. There's no way they could have lived, and under the circumstances, it was astonishing that they lived. Shelley tells the story of the Dion quintuplets from the perspective of a young woman who is called in to help Mrs. Dion give birth. She's training to be a midwife, and Again, it's a kind of story where the media takes over. Um, These young girls become a total sensation. Um, The public is fascinated by them. They are actually taken away from their parents, moved across the street to what is essentially a little baby farm. And every day, thousands and thousands of people kind of troop through their house and look at these little kids playing and marvel at the fact that there's five of them and they all look like each other. The, the King and Queen of England come to visit them, movie stars come to see them, Greta Garbo comes to see them, and they're just these little children. Um, the tragedy of the Dion's is that they made a lot of money, but they didn't get a lot of that money. So um, as they grew up, if you want to explore what happened to the Dion quintuplets, it's, it's a fascinating and kind of tragic story. But this is a story really about um it's about the media and how media can take over the lives of people but it's also about love because this young woman who becomes the mid you know their, their the midwife who becomes their little baby nurse really loves these children and she's fictitious but she probably represents someone who honestly worked there at some point in time and she um, has no motive other to, than to make sure that these kids have a happy life. It's a very fascinating story, and Shelley has done the most meticulous research. Again, I think this is perfect for readers who love those kinds of um, known but unknown kind of novels. You know, this is something that people may have heard of, or they might think, oh, yeah, I heard of the Dionne quintuplets. Um, but this really does kind of dig into how they were brought up and what happened to them as children. So that is um, the Quintland Sisters, and it's by Shelley Noble. And so working my way through another historical novel, if any of you read and loved the other Alcott uh, last year, which was by Elise Hooper, this is Elise's follow-up novel. This is called Learning to See. And this is a novel about Dorothea Lang. And it's really interesting to me when I was presenting this book here, so many people came up to me and said, oh my gosh, I just saw this amazing, I think it was on PBS special about Dorothea Lang, And I knew all of the photos. This is a case where I wish we had a little video going. I knew all of the photos, and I know had no idea the story of the woman, you know, who took these photos. Dorothea Lange was amazing. She was a pioneer photographer. She came to San Francisco um, at the beginning of the turn of the last century. And she kind of got stranded there. She came there with one of her girlfriends, and they were going to go on this like round-the-world adventure, as young people often do. And all their money got stolen, and they got stuck in San Francisco, and they had to get jobs. So she got a job as a photographer's assistant and discovered that she was actually quite good at it. And things took off from there. She became um, a WPA photographer. And what's really interesting about her is not only did she take many famous photos um of people during the Depression, especially in the Dust Bowl. So if you um, think about Steinbeck's Dust Bowl, those are the photographs of those kinds of people, She and she really brought to light so much of that social injustice. She was one of the few photographers who was actually let into the Japanese internment camps in the nineteen forties and was allowed to take photos there and these and, and bring these photos out to the wider world. People kind of knew that these camps were happening, especially if they lived on the West Coast where, you know, their neighbors were there one day and the next day they were not. But I don't think the vast number of Americans, it was really not on their radar screen and she re- she truly helped bring these um, situations to light. She also had a fascinating life. Um, Like many women, she had a hard time juggling her professional life and her personal life. She may have done better at her professional life and I think she would have been the first to admit that, but she was a strong, amazing person whose story deserves to be told and who I think the zeitgeist is just right. There are exhibitions of her Photographs um, kind of popping up all over the nation, and there is more interest in her growing every day. So what? So Elise Hooper, I think, has done a great job, kind of being on the cusp of someone who's coming back into the forefront and telling the story of an extraordinarily strong woman. Again, a woman whose story deserves to be told, and it's fiction, so it's it's you know again perfect for people who um, love learning about learning about other learning about women, strong women, interesting stories. Um, but who may not be quite willing to tackle, you know, a very huge nonfiction book about them. And my last historical novel, and then believe it or not, I have two contemporaries that I'll talk about, is by Karen Harper. So many of you know Karen Harper. She wrote a lot of books about the Tudors. She's also written a lot of suspense. Um, But recently for William Morrow, she has been doing these kind of glorious historical novels. And this is called American Duchess. American Duchess Um, is about Consuelo Vanderbilt, and I always want to say that before Meghan Markle, an American, married into royalty, um, there were a lot of Americans who, if they did not necessarily marry into royalty, they certainly married into the aristocracy, and in the late 1900s, they were called dollar princesses, and that's basically because they had a ton of money, um, crass American money, and the aristocracy over in England had a lot of crumbling mansions and palaces and they didn't have a lot of money at the time. So they married these young women and it was sort of, you get a title, we get some money and everybody's happy. Well, everybody wasn't always happy. Poor Consuelo Vanderbilt, you know, she was the quintessential poor little rich girl. She was forced into the marriage she, she ended up with with the Duke of Marlborough, who... who um had Blenheim Palace. Blenheim Palace, as her mother Alva, Consuelo's mother, keeps saying, is the only you know stately building owned in England, not by royals, that is actually called a palace. And her mother, Consuelo's mother Alva, basically traded off her daughter for a title. Um, Consuelo was 18. She was good looking in kind of an interesting way. She was very tall and had this famous long neck, and she always draped it in pearls and she was in love with somebody else and she had this huge society wedding and underneath her veil, famously even said in the newspapers, her face was all splotchy because she was crying and these were not tears of joy, she was miserable. But she decided to make the best of this situation and she tried really hard to be married to the Duke of Marlborough, who, um, well, this is Consuelo's story and from Consuelo's perspective, he was kind of a cold fish. Maybe the Duke had a different idea about himself but they did try to make a go of it. But Consuelo ended up um, really finding herself later in life. She and the Duke got divorced. I don't want to give too much of the story away, but I will say she ultimately did find great happiness with a French pilot, so extremely romantic. And Consuelo's story is told as only Karen can. It's, you know, she tells these um, wonderful stories about women. She, she again, another one, does terrific research, and it's with a very, um, it's not a heavy-handed book, it's with a great light touch. Uh, I think that people will enjoy it, and I think, you know, people are endlessly fascinated by the lives of the rich and famous. Consuela was also a bit of a media sensation when she was young, and even as she, um, you know, grew up, and she grew up during the course of this marriage. So that is American Duchess by Karen Harper. So take a breath, pause, I'm going to shift gears a little bit and I'm going to talk about two of my novels that are set in the here and now, or at least pretty close to the here and now. So um, a little bit of a backstory: As a young woman, I grew up in the Hudson Valley and um, which is um, in New York State for those of you who don't know. And on the banks of the Hudson is West Point. And I was dragged to school trips. You know, we'd go to West Point and it would be like literally the forced march, watching the marching around West Point. Um, it was just one of those things that we did, along with going to a bunch of mansions that I won't get into. But I always wondered, you know, I when I was growing up, it was around the time that women were first um, allowed in West Point. It had, you know, previously been you know boys club men only and i always wondered not coming from a very militarily inclined family you know what would make a young woman what make anybody go to west point but especially what would make a woman go to west point i mean to me it just seemed like i don't know a lot of marching and a lot of bad clothes (laughs) Um, So, but I'd always been kind of fascinated by it and also very respect, you know, conversely, that all sounded rather flip, conversely, very respectful. I mean, this is a place that has an enormous amount of history, you know, it is the basis of our military, millions, not millions, I'm exaggerating, thousands of people have come out of West Point who became um, leaders, including Eisenhower. So, you know, there's a bit of a mystique to West Point too. So when the novel Beyond the Point by Claire Gibson landed on my desk, I I was fascinated because there it was a novel about three young women, each of whom for different reasons decide to go to West Point. And I was fascinated by Claire's story. The author grew up at West Point. Her father um, was in the military and was a professor there. So she kind of grew up, you know, a civilian, but surrounded by all of this. And she, um, you know, also did a lot of research. She talked to so many young women who had gone to West Point and learned their stories and incorporated, you know, was inspired by them and and incorporated, you know, a lot of what they told her into this book. So this is a novel about two young women. One woman is from a military kind of background family, but there's no sons. And I think, you know, during the course of the story we learned, maybe she felt a little pressure to attend and kind of carry on the family tradition. One's a young African-American who goes, um, it provides her opportunity not only um, to play sports because they all play sports at West Point, but to gain an amazing education. And another young woman um, goes and she's sort of the family screw up and she wants to prove that she can do something that nobody ever really expected her to do. And they all meet at the point and they make their way through. But the other interesting kind of kind of twist in this book is they joined just on the eve of 9-11, and and I know a lot lot of people who joined the military just before 9-11, and what they expected from the military was quite different from what happened, because what happened was we essentially went to war, and people who had gone in the military thinking they were going to live a certain kind of life in the military ended up, you know, over in the Middle East, um, you know, fighting in sand and heat and fighting an enemy who You know, you sometimes had a hard time distinguishing between who was your enemy and who was not. And the complications, um, moral complications that, you know, come about because of that, too. So there's a lot of amazing stuff going on in this book. But the core of this novel, I say, is this is a novel about strong female friendship. And I think so many books do that well. And my hope is that Beyond the Point becomes one of those top-selling, very popular books where these are books about women, their bonds, their friendship, and how they help each other get through the difficulties that they face in life. And not all the difficulties that they face in this book are um, because they joined the army. You know, every person has to face challenges in their life, and these these women, these characters do, and they do it with um, a great deal of humanity and a great deal of strength. And the book is also just, it's just super interesting because you learn things about living at West Point or going to school at West Point, and I had no idea about. So um, there's some, there some really kind of fun moments too. So that is Beyond the Point by Claire Gibson. And just when you think I've probably spoken enough, I have one more book I want to share with you. So. This, is bo- this novel is called Hemingway's in Love, and this is a really amazing sister story. Um, Annie England Noblin has written, and maybe some of you know her books, like Sit, Stay, Speak. They all have exclamation points after each word. Or Pupcakes. So when she started out, she wrote these books, and you know everyone would say to me, oh, they're the dog books. And yes, indeed, they are the dog books, and they're so charming. But I kept kind of working with Annie. I'm like, you know, you can push that writing, push it, push it, make it more complex, make it stronger, make it better. And she gave me the proposal for The Sisters Hemingway. And this was just so emotional and good. There's something about sister stories I personally have a lot of sisters and maybe that's why it resonates with me. They, those relationships can get tricky and they can get complicated. I think that even if people don't have sort of the sisters that your, you know, your mother kind of gave to you, <laughs> and then there are sisters that maybe you choose. I think these are relationships that truly resonate, um, particularly with female readers. But I would I never discount the fact that male readers could love these books, too. Um, The Sisters Hemingway is fun because it's about four sisters, and each one of them was named for um, a wife of Ernest Hemingway, which to me is an interesting choice for parents to make to begin with. And um, they all have to return to their home, this small town, Cold River, uh, when their aunt who raised them passes away. And one of the sisters actually—I um, don't want to give away too much of the plot—but one of the sisters had actually died when they were children. So it's the three adult sisters come back, and you know, each of them thinks the other has this perfect life. One became um, like a kind of a country star, country singer. One is married to a senator. One went off, and you know, they think she lives this like glamorous life as a book editor. Which of course I could tell them is not so glamorous. But you can think that if you want to. Um, but you know, of course, it being a novel, they all have um kind of secrets in their past, and things aren't quite what they seem. So they all kind of have to come to terms with how they grew up, where they grew up, what their relationships were. and what i what I think is really true, speaking from experience is, When you are a person with a family, particularly sisters, and you go home, you all revert to being 13 again, and like all those kind of characteristics just keep coming back to haunt you. And I think Annie does this, it's so funny and sad and poignant and emotional all at the same time. And yes, there is a dog, um, but it's not like one of her dog books. This is really something special. So The Sisters Hemingway by Annie England Noblin. And before I go, I just want to add that all the William Morrow books or at least 95% of them have really amazing back of book material called PS. And I just want to do a shout out. I won't go through all of my titles again, but I do want to do a shout out to two of them. Um, the Quintland sisters, Shelley Wood did the most amazing behind-the-book material. Um, she incorporated actual articles about the Quints and photos and um, stories about what happened to them. And she has a reading group guide in the back, so I think that. Anyone who's interested in kind of delving in further this in the story of the Dion Quintuplets, this would be a, a I think she has a bibliography too. Like this would be a great starting point for them, and and will even give them insight into their 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 true true story. The other book I want to shout out for is Beyond the Point. Claire Gibson included. Many of the interviews, with their permission, of the young women who she talked to when she was, you know, formulating the book, she's also included some photos um, of their life at West Point. She also has a reading group guide and more behind how she kind of came um, came to write the book. I feel like these are two back of book sections that are really worth um, pointing out to readers if they want to kind of know more. And as I said before, all of our books have PS sections and I always encourage people to to push them and and mention that and and let people know that there is always more to the story than just the story. So that right now is my list. Um, I hope that you are intrigued and um, I hope that you will give all of these books a try. I think that they are perfect. They're perfect for collections of all sorts. I mean, you could do, I think like with three of my books alone, you could probably like add them to a Victorian novel collection or a famous women collection or a trailblazers collection. Uh, But also just individually, they're all so spectacular. And I just thank you all for listening and for giving me a chance to talk about books, which is the favorite part of my job and the part that probably I don't get to do enough. So thanks for this opportunity. And this is Lucia Macro and I'm signing off. So thank you very much.